You're listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. To find out more about individual learning programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. To subscribe to this free podcast on the web or on your mobile, visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Gabby Stroud loved her job as a primary school teacher. Eventually, what she calls the changing nature of teaching led to burnout and her decision to leave the profession. In an essay she wrote for the Griffith Review, she talks of her frustrations, but also of a future for education filled with hope and guided by a few dangerous ideas. Whilst not in the classroom, her passion for education remains strong, and she calls for things like profound commitment to teachers, trust, and renewed thinking on things like creativity, imagination, and ingenuity. And she does this for the sake of a student she calls Australia. In her essay, she asks, who would teach her, and how would she learn? In this episode, I continue this discussion with Gabby as we search for the answers to some big questions. Gabby, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Colin, for having me. You uh, recently wrote an article for the Griffith Review, which uh, on reading paints a complex picture of joy and fulfillment, yet you can't help notice the pain and frustration at the same time. And uh, it also received some widespread exposure through that wonderful interview you gave with uh, Richard Feidler on the ABC. Now, I, I don't want to recount the intensity of why you left teaching in our discussion today, but instead I'd like to focus on the future because your article talks quite a bit about a potential future. So given that many of our listeners will be parents of primary-aged children, I'd like to focus on the latter half where you talk about a student called Australia, and you've personified Australia as a, as a her, um, and you ask who would teach her and how would she learn? I, I'm curious, why do you think Australia was born into your imagination? I really, I'm really grateful, Colin, that you've picked up on that, um, I, some of those ideas that I was expressing towards the end of the essay, because I think therein uh, lies the hope that I still have for teaching and for education. So this idea of Australia and, and of Australia being a student sort of comes from my um, my cheeky sense of humour, I suppose, because each Friday as I was leaving the, the staff room, I would rally the staff who were sort of, you know, reluctant to leave and I would say, come on guys, it's time for us to go and teach the youth of our nation. And we would chuckle because all of us knew that that last hour on a Friday was probably not going to be the week's finest hour of teaching. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, and it wasn't going to be the student's finest hour of learning. Everyone's exhausted at that time. But it was an hour that you had to, you know, you had to push through anyway. And even though that seems like it's a really funny and lighthearted um, comment, that idea of teaching the youth of our nation still uh, carries really great meaning and value to me because it's easy to um, look at teaching and, you know, sort of, I mean, I taught kindergarten for many years and often people would say, why are you so busy? Just teach kindergarten. But I would say, well, that's why I'm so busy because I just teach kindergarten. You know, this teaching that we do, it's such an important job. And this idea, you know, in my imagination of teaching a student called Australia, it was it's this broad idea that I have that I'd love to imagine that there's a student called Australia and that we could teach her, 
with a really light-hearted sense of freedom as though our teaching doesn't matter at all. But all the while we understand that the teaching that we're doing is perhaps the most important thing we can do for that, that student Australia. Interesting that you say with freedom. I guess that implies an experience of yours or perhaps of others where freedom is absent. Yes, I, I think that that's part of the problem of primary education in Australia today is that so much freedom has been taken not just from the teachers but from the learners as well. Uh, and so I'm interested in, in reclaiming some of that for our schools and school communities. So, yeah, that's, that's the idea of Australia as, as a student. And, you know, I, I just really think that whenever we see a class of of children, you know, we might be driving past the school or we work in a school or when we're doing a school drop-off, dropping our own kids off, you know, you should look at those kids and think, well, that's Australia. You know, they've they've come from their, their parents and, and their history and they're going to go forward and make the future. You know, these are the kids that will be pushing us around in wheelchairs and governing our country when, when we're old and grey. And, and so it, we do need to look at, at education as though we're forming Australia. I just want to pick up there on the comment that people make to you when they say, why are you so busy? You, you just teach kindergarten. Mm. Uh, I have a kindergarten-aged child, and when I heard you say that, I kind of got that half-closed-eyes reaction mm. uh, because I, would, I wonder what people would say if I was one of the, or if my child was just one of those kindergarten children. Mm. How, how, did, mm. how do you respond to that? I think I think I'm conditioned now to choose my battles because for some people their minds just aren't ready to be open to the idea that actually just teaching kindergarten could possibly be one of the most important professions on the planet. Um, but if if I think the person's open to it, I, you know, I, I say to them, look, I really believe that it's incredibly important work that I'm doing because if I can get those those kindergarten children to fall in love with learning and become lifelong learners, then wow, I'm setting all of us up, our whole society, for a really great and hopeful future. The second half of your article talks about some pretty uh, blue sky ideas. And uh, just three three words that I've uh, picked up on straight away were the, f- the fact that you say we need imagination, ingenuity, and creativity. And without allowing those to just be heard as, well, more buzzwords of today, I think I think on the surface many would agree, but I, I think what you were suggesting was probably something a lot deeper. And given the fact that parents will be listening to this and uh, they might be wondering how those things can become reality, mm. how, do, how do parents take those big ideas and encourage them at home so that they carry on into the classroom? Mm. That is, again, a very good um, question. And and perhaps when I wrote the piece, I was thinking um, of this imagination, ingenuity and creativity as being things that I really wanted the politicians to hear. You know, I really wanted uh, the people that frame our education to pick up on it because that's, that's fundamental to the change that's needed in education. But I'm beginning to realise as I see the response from parents that perhaps the change that's going to happen is going to be a grassroots kind of change. And, you know, there are so many ways that parents can encourage those wonderful values um, 
in their own in their own children and in their own home. And when I thought about this, I thought, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you lock in. It doesn't have to be right. Well, we'll, we'll spend every Thursday afternoon painting pictures, or you know, we'll all go to the theatre on on the first weekend of the month. You know, imagination and creativity, things like that, come from the simpler things. And it's just as simple as talking, you know, having really good quality conversations with your kids, uh, asking them questions, encouraging them to ask questions, finding answers together, you know, exploring ideas. When when kids tell you something, you know, they have this unique perspective on the world and when they notice something, just taking that minute to explore it with them, um, telling stories and jokes with, with kids, and, and sharing memories, you know, having children engage in talk with their grandparents and, um, you know, people in the community and, and sharing stories. Letting ourselves laugh with our kids. You know, we're so busy sometimes just trying to get them out the door to school and, you know, to pick them up from school and get them to the next activity and then throw some dinner on the table. But just to take a minute and to laugh with them. Children are so ready to laugh. Mm. And and we should let them take take us there with them on the, on those little journeys of laughter and comedy. I'm hearing a fairly strong message of uh, language coming out when you when yeah. you say that they need people should be talking with their children, sharing stories, laughing. A very strong language and communication message. Do do we not talk to our kids enough? I don't have any evidence to back up this claim, but what I'm going to say is that. During the 15 years that I was teaching, and I was I spent a lot of that time in the junior years, so kindergarten or prep, um, year one, year two, I saw a huge decline in the verbal ability of the students that were coming into school. So not just speech um, impediments, you know, being born with a cleft palate or something that that would affect their um, production of speech and sound but their lack of vocabulary, uh, their inability to even comprehend a joke, to, to understand those small nuances of, of a play on words, um, to pick up on double meanings of words, to be able to engage in conversation, to be able to re- request to go to the toilet, things like that. They, they, just didn't, they don't have that same... Uh, they're not coming to school with that same mastery of language. And so... I do believe talking with our with our children is one of the most important things that, that we can be doing, particularly at that primary school age when they still want to talk to us before they become teenagers and just want to grunt at us. Coming, coming back to those three big words, imagination, ingenuity and creativity, I mean, they're good vocabulary words to be teaching our young children anyway. Um, if if we find as parents that this kind of thing isn't happening in school or not being talked about in school, either through the work that's coming back with our kids or or um, information evenings that we go to, should mm. parent should parents in your experience? I mean, I'm trying to come back to your experience being a teacher and having to talk to parents. Would mm. you would you in your position have appreciated parents coming to talk to, to you about that? So should parents talk to the school if they feel that this sort of thing is important but it's not happening? Yes, absolutely. I, I really, um, I'm a real 100% passionate advocate for this idea of the parent being the first educator of their child 
and you're one of their lifelong educators, you will bear witness to their education from kinder through high school and then if they go on to tertiary education and then even beyond that when they become parents themselves. So I really would like to see parents stop apologising when they walk through the classroom door. I'd love them just to walk in, um, thank the teacher for their time, um, but to know that they play an important role themselves as an educator and so they need to be going in and letting teachers know that, yep, they're on board and they're invested in their child's education. So that's, Having, your, that's, your, sorry, that's your perspective in terms of yeah. how you like to receive parents yeah. in, into your classroom. Yeah. I, can, I can imagine that some teachers might find that a little bit uh, confronting. Yeah, a lot of teachers do. And this is part of the, the broader paradigm shift that I think um, is needed in terms of how we look at and think about education. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm all for teachers making a few changes as well as, you know, all the other stakeholders in education. I think that as a parent, if, if you're going to be effective in your communication with a, with a teacher, though, when you do go into that, classroom you need to be really mindful of a few things so you know don't bail teachers up a few minutes before class goes in and try not to nab them the very moment they step out of the classroom it's really wonderful if parents can make an appointment to see a teacher that just shows such a respect for the teacher's time and it's a professional thing to do um the other thing i think parents need to be mindful that teachers really do feel at the moment that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I think they'd like nothing better than to have more freedom and to provide more creative um, lessons and more uh, imaginative opportunities for their students. But they're, they're, they're trying to race through a curriculum that they're mandated to implement. So sometimes uh, even though you've expressed um, your feelings about what you'd like to see going on in the classroom, you may have to just wait a while until the teacher can get to those activities because they are trying to work through a program. And the other thing is teachers are professionals and it's not nice being told how to do your job. So, <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're going in to speak to a teacher, you know, frame what you want to say as a suggestion and then offer the teacher the support that's needed for that suggestion to um, come through. So... An example from my own life, I had a parent come in, she was coming in and helping with reading and she really gently said to me, Gabby, I noticed you don't do a lot of art with, with the kids. And I said, no, you know, art's not my strongest point and, you know, I struggle with it. And, and she said, I'm an artist. Let me come in and do some clay work. Well, you know, problem solved. And, and, and it was amazing what the students produced uh, I learnt so much. It was really what, what learning should be all about, you know. It, it was wonderful. Students saw me become a learner. Um, you know, the child whose um, parents it was, you know, he got to see his mum as a teacher, you know, in a formal sort of capacity. It was just wonderful. So, you know, as a parent, if you have a great idea for how that could be opened up, you know, suggest that and provide the teacher with support for it and then just wait. You know, it, there may be some hoops and procedures that a teacher has to jump through to get that wonderful idea put in place. I guess what I'm picking up here is that there's there's almost like a, a pent-up pressure in the system that if someone were to come in and even suggest or even mm. re- remotely suggest, 
I'm telling yeah. you how to do your job, that that's that, that would just release a pre- pressure valve of of anger and frustration. Yeah. So, and, and on the same side, you know, a parent comes in and, and says, well, I think you should do this or I'm suggesting mm. this because I've got one or two children not realising that, that the teacher might have 20 or 30 who yeah. are, all, di- who are yeah. all different, of course. Yes, that's right. And, you know, as a teacher sometimes too, you hear from these parents and you think, well, yeah, I've got that scheduled in, in week nine or whatever, you know, like sometimes there's that sense of just let me do my job, have have trust and have faith in me, you know. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is, it's, as you said at the beginning, Colin, it's such a complex, complex thing, you know, this business of learning and teaching well. You mentioned in your article that what we need, looking forward again, looking at the, the mm-hmm. forward-looking aspects of, of your article, you talk of a profound commitment to our teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, commitment from whom? I would like to see a profound commitment to teachers from our politicians because, unfortunately, in Australia, education is married to politics and until that can change, we need strong, profound, heartfelt commitment from our politicians. Uh, We need it from our school managers, Um, so that might be from principals or uh, system coordinators, you know, departments. We need it from our parents. Um, And that that commitment needs to be to value our teachers, to value their professionalism, to value their well-being, to respect their judgment and to listen to teachers. That's something that so many people have said to me um, in the in the um, follow up of my article being published is, oh, finally someone is um, is saying what we so long wanted to say. All these teachers are saying, thank you, Gabby, thank you for saying what you've said. So I really think that teachers feel like they don't have a very strong voice out there. So I think listening to teachers is something that we need a, a profound commitment to. Sounds to me like the model of the parent-teacher day or parent-teacher night, however the school likes to do it, is starting to become a little bit outmoded. I mean, it's kind of running out of time. What I'm hearing here is that you're suggesting a much deeper and ongoing communication between parent and teacher Something mm. that something that a, a parent teacher night once or twice a year just just won't do. Mm, mm, absolutely, I, I I do, and and like I say, you know, my, my um my vision of education in Australia isn't you know orthodox, and and it's quite different from what actually exists. So it does seem different to to the models and the structures that we're used to. But I, I really think that you know it's time now for parents and teachers to be having some really honest conversations um, about how the, how the child is learning. Um, I think parents need to recognise themselves as their child's teacher and, and embrace that responsibility. And I really think that teachers will get so much from parents who come in and tell them what's working. You know, like when a parent comes in, the first thing you sort of think as a teacher is, oh, no, something's wrong. Here comes a problem. Mm. And it would be so lovely to see a parent come in and sort of think, well, I don't know which way this is going to go because, you know, I get 50-50. I get people coming in with suggestions and comments, but I also get parents coming in telling me great things that are happening at home. You know, that kind of um, 
depth of conversation would be so mutually beneficial. Teachers are burdened with this workload of recognising every student as an individual, differentiating the curriculum, catering for all of them, and, and parents want that. But teachers are so under the pump to try and achieve that. And yet if parents are in a partnership and coming in and, you know, that if that um, parent-teacher meeting is, is about some time where we set goals, and, you know, we really make those uh, very specific and something that we can come back to and that that becomes then something that we dialogue about. It's going to be just so powerful, um, you know, and I think that's actually going to liberate a lot of teachers as well. You know, if you as a parent go in and say, you know what, I want you to know that... Um, I'm not too fussed about the NAPLAN results or I'm not too fussed about um, the standard delivery of the curriculum. I really want um, my child to socialise well or to learn how to apply effort or to not be so lazy or to, to cooperate. Or You know, if a parent comes in and tells me, oh, I've got so much trouble getting my kids ready in the morning for school, you know, to me, I'm like, okay, well, there's a skill we need to be working on. Um, you know, teaching our kids is so much more than just going back to basics. You're listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik, brought to you by LearnFast. To subscribe to this free podcast on the web or on your mobile, visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Here's a question for you. You, you mentioned students... Uh, learning for the joy of it and not mm. for the not for the test of it. Mm. Uh, let's let's say that there's a parent out there who agrees with this statement. Mm. Uh, have you ever had a parent come in and say, "You know what, Gabby? I, I really just hope that my kid is learning for the joy of it and not for the test of it." I have had parents express that. I've had many parents come in and express that. You know, I I've had more parents come in and. You know, I've counselled parents, you know, they come in crying and it's never been about, oh, my child's stuck on reader level number six. It's been, my child um, feels like they don't have friends. How can we address that? You know, I think that parents are really more about the, the higher ideals of learning than the detailed um the detailed components of data, um, you know, and and I just love it when a parent comes in and says to me whether their kid is on reader level 6 or 16 and say to me, oh, he couldn't wait to get his readers out last night. We had such a great time reading. You know, so many people are lighting up in that experience. I am as a teacher the, the child is as a reader and the parent is as a partner in that child's learning. Um, you know, if, if we make people feel joyful about their learning and to know that learning is a, is a rich and challenging experience, then we're doing good things for society. We're, we're doing good things for their future and, and for this idea of Australia, you know, this future Australia that I think about. So this is interesting because you say that you've had a lot of parents come to you and talk about their children learning for the joy of it, not so much for the not so much for the test of it. Let's just expand this out now and just imagine that there are lots of you in the system, and I'm sure there are. Mm. Imagine that lots of you are having lots of parents 
telling you this so that this message is effectively being multiplied. Mm. It, it's interesting that that might seem at odds with the way politics is saying, well, no, NAPLAN's really important. We need to increase our NAPLAN results. And you, on one mm. hand, you've got parents saying, uh, no, actually, I just want my child to be happy at school and be doing well. Yeah. But on the other side, you've got the government saying, uh, no, we really want NAPLAN to be doing well, which is those mm. two things aren't, aren't really the same. Mm, and you and before you were talking about a grassroots thing. So how do we get mm. the parents to in, uh, to make their voice heard a little bit better? The, that's the million dollar question, Colin. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure how parents are going to do this. Uh, I think it's going to come from being persistent. I think it's going to come by parents being critical thinkers, just as they want their children to be. And I think it's going to come from uh, parents um, looking at the media and then asking themselves, well, hang on a minute. Um, you know, because part of the problem is NAPLAN and um, all the any standardised test that gets held up as this quantifiable measure. But I think the thing that is neglected there is what I talk about as the art and the science of teaching and I think to the art and the science of learning. So politicians would argue that we need NAPLAN because otherwise how are we going to measure, how are we going to know that we're doing all these great things in Australian classrooms? So there stands that argument. My response to that is that if we only focus on that, then we're not seeing uh, the art that's going on within our schools. And by the art, I mean that quality delivery of curriculum, those relationships that teachers are forming, that sense of community that schools are evolving, uh, those lifelong learners that we're producing, that joy-filled learning that students are experiencing, that sense of partnership that parents are um, noticing. How you can't put a number on that. No NAPLAN test can test that, and yet that's the heart of what we do as as teachers, and it's the heart of what uh, learners experience as our students. I think we might be getting close to the end part of your article where you start to talk about the dangerous what ifs in in, in the thing that you've just been talking about. Um, you ask a lot of what if type questions, and you say that they're dangerous. Yeah. I, I chuckled when I read that and I thought, well, hmm, okay, why are they dangerous? Mm. So what if is a wonderful question that, that teachers know um, to ask their students. So, you know, what if we um, did this instead of that? Or what if we uh, substituted this character for that character? It's a really powerful question. It gets people thinking. When I ask the what ifs, I consider them to be dangerous because... There are so many stakeholders in education. There are the students, the teachers, the parents, the principals, the curriculum writers, the administrators, governing bodies, politicians. And every one of those stakeholders believes that they have the answer. So when you ask what is, it's, it's almost impossible to unite all those stakeholders in a unified uh, answer that will move us forward. There's another reason why the what-ifs are dangerous and that's because even though I, I can sit here and say that in the 15 years I've been teaching, teaching has really changed, there's a flip side to that that actually is 
that the fundamental model of Australian education, the system that we work in, it actually has not changed at all. So we are still functioning on this old industrial model where we go to school, we learn and we do that so that we can work and then we work to make money and then the cycle continues. But I want to question that idea, that, that paradigm of, of um, this industrial model of, of schooling and if it's still serving our needs and um, if, if it's really uh, creating um, and developing these young Australians. So questioning this really long-held paradigm actually makes people feel uncomfortable because for so long we've worked with this industrial model, people actually find it difficult to imagine a new possibility. They sort of think, well, what will school look like then and, and what will we be learning about then? Um, it, it, it makes people feel um, scared. You know, they, they feel uncomfortable and um, unsure of themselves. So that's why I think my what-if questions are actually a little bit dangerous. Is it a question of trust? Do you think we trust our teachers? I think that we've actually lost, um, we've lost trust in our teachers. Uh, I think that <laughs> this teacher accountability um, that has come in has actually crippled the quality of teaching that teachers are able to deliver and it's debilitated the working lives of teachers. I mean, teachers now, they're not, they're not trusted to the point that, you know, I, I had to document every time I gave a child a Band-Aid and in kindergarten that's a lot because kids love nothing more than listening to a story and picking the scab off their knee. And <laughs> there's blood trickling down their shin. Oh, no. And, you know, to, to, you can't just hand them a Band-Aid. You have to sign a form. And, you know, that just debilitates you as a teacher. You know, on that, on that afternoon when you're trying to do your lesson and you're in the moment and the simple thing would be just hand them a Band-Aid and move on, but then you've got to stop and do paperwork. You just think... No one trusts me anymore. You know, I, I can't even be trusted to be with this child who picks the scab on their knee. You know, teachers have to document everything they teach before they're going to teach it. Then they have to collect evidence to show that they've taught what they said they were going to teach. And then they have to evaluate everything that, that, that they've taught. And then along with this, they've got to evaluate and assess every student and how they're progressing and then record that in endless and varied ways so that it, all that data can be turned into something that can be quantified. And then on top of that, teachers are now being asked to uh, go through professional teaching standards. And whilst that sounds great in theory, it sounds like something that professionals in a career should have to do, it's actually the way it's been implemented. It's just another hoop jumping process. So teachers are again taken away from their focus, which should be the learner, and instead they've got to focus on their own performance. They've got to set goals. They've got to create paperwork. They've got to evaluate their goals. They've got to reflect on that, and they've got to collect data for that. It just becomes these these endless cycles of of red tape and documentation. Everything from what you're going to teach, then your own professional teaching standards, the administration of a Band-Aid, you know, everything is just constantly a um, cycle of documentation. So all of that has left teachers feeling like they have no power. And, and when I say power, I mean 
they've got no autonomy. No one trusts them. So we've just got to record everything that we do because we're no longer considered professionals and our professional judgment isn't valued. You talk a lot about the data that's being collected, both in terms of what we plan to teach, what we then do actually teach, and the evaluations. We have to document that as well. And it's just data upon data upon data. Mm. The the beginning of your essay, you talk about some student profiles. Like you say, this is so-and-so, and and her family's going through this, and this is this young Mm. boy, and he's struggling with this and that. And um, for those listeners who haven't read that, I strongly encourage you to... uh, to find that article in the Griffith Review and, and have a read of that because it's a very powerful opening. Mm. We, we talk a lot about data and mm. yet in most schools you might have one or a part-time counsellor. Mm. I mean, is, is, that, is that in itself an indication that we're so much more interested in the data than the person? Mm. Yes, it, it is. There's that old saying where energy, uh, where attention goes, your energy flows. So all of our attention is going into data, assessing, uh, have they learnt, how much have they learnt, is it up on last year's numbers, um, you know, graph it, put it in a spreadsheet, put it in a table, and yet that's taking away from these little people, these, these kids who are 5 through to 12 years old who have needs, desires, hopes, dreams, and some of them are struggling. Some of them are going through experiences in their families, in their home life, just within themselves as they evolve as people. And they need the support of trusted adults to get them through that. Now, as a teacher, I can't, I can try, but I know, I know that I can't deliver that to every child. I'm not even qualified to do that, but a counsellor is. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our attention went on to, you know, maintaining and supporting our students and their health and well-being by implementing, you know, full-time counsellors uh, in our schools so that we could see, you know, students starting to, at a young age, be able to manage their mental health, to have strategies for um, the varied feelings that they have, you know, that we could value that as much as, we value their performance on a test. We would have evolved so much if we could arrive at that kind of place. That sounds like a fairly dangerous and large what-if question. What if we actually had a team of counsellors for every school? Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, the, the question that comes hot on the heels of that is, well, why not? You know, why don't we? And, you know, then when I hear... Um, excuses like, oh, it comes down to funding and it comes down to money and things like that, then I start going, well, what if? What if we shifted some of the expense that we're putting on NAPLAN and maintaining my school's website and all of that? What if we shifted some of that? You know, I'm a dangerous thinker, Colin. I, I make people feel very uncomfortable. Gosh, shif- <laughs> shifting funds from NAPLAN, that's, oh, yeah, you're going to make a few yeah. people uncomfortable about that. I, am, ha- I certainly am. And having a team of counsellors, I can almost see the accountants of school boards all over the place just, you know, yes. s- screeching in horror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How yes, will we pay absolutely. for that? <laughs> absolutely. I know, I know. I, I, you know, and... And and as you said earlier, this is the blue sky dreaming that we need to be doing because, you know, the only thing that's stopping this from happening is is from the people that I call bean counters who who say we we don't have enough money to do it because I know and I believe that in Australia we do have 
a wonderful, uh, you know, group of people who are, you know, in, trained in that professional counselling um, and, and psychological um, area who could offer wonderful things to our schools, our students, even teachers. You know, there are teachers out there who need someone to debrief with. You know, someone to talk to at the end of the day when, um, you know, this little one has come up and made a disclosure that they've had to report. You know, that's hard on a teacher too. Mm. Who's supporting that teacher and providing for their well-being so they can come back next week and do it all again? You know, these are, these are the things that I believe we should be focusing on. So let's say there's a parent out there, or let's say there are many parents out there listening to this thinking... Yep, look, I, this totally resonates with me and I really feel that I should do something about it. But, you know, maybe they've got some what-if questions in their mind and they say, yep, mm. well, actually, I think they're dangerous. <laughs> mm. Yeah, mm. I think, And they're thinking that their own what-ifs are dangerous. They mm. might be unsure of how to start. They might even be mm. a little bit afraid to do so. The thought of talking to the principal or talking to the teacher or, or anything like that might be a little bit scary. Mm. What, what would you say to them? I would remind that parent that they are the lifelong educator of their child and I'd say to them, I'd let them in on a little secret which is something that good teachers do and that secret is that good teachers meet their learners at their point of need. So a good teacher doesn't just pitch the lesson out there and and hope for the best, sprinkle it out like it's fertiliser. A good teacher looks at, well, where is this child at? What do they know now and what do I need to share with them to get them to move to the next point? So parents can do that as well. So I'd like to see parents not get hung up on, oh, am I, am I, if, I, if I do some um, work at home with my kid or if I you know, want to engage in creative pursuits with my child, am I doing it right? Is this going to be different to what the teacher told me? No, don't get hung up on any of that. Meet your child at their point of need and, and trust this idea that learning is innate to human beings. We're designed and we're built to learn. And kids will learn despite their teachers and despite their parents. It's actually a really organic and simple process. So that's what I'd be telling parents is, you know, just work with your kid. Just start by talking to your child. Find out what they're interested in and, and just engage them. From there, I think that, you know, naturally you'll see your child learn, you'll feel empowered, and then you might feel ready to go into the classroom and have a conversation about things you're noticing about your child as a learner or, you know, those wonderful ideas might develop where you recognise something in yourself that you can go and share, not just with your um with your child, but with your child's class. I think that parents too can teach their own children so much that teachers um, don't have time to teach. You know, they can teach them emotional intelligence. They can teach them social responsibilities. They can teach them all the things that they value themselves. You know, parents can foster this in their, in their own child. Um, you know, so it, it's such a beautiful privilege. It's, it's a joy to be a parent and to watch your own child grow. And, you know, parents should, um, you know, should feel a freedom to invest in that because they are that lifelong um, and first teacher of their child. Gabby, your ongoing passion is an inspiration. It's been great talking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And if you'd like to comment on this podcast, you can send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.